Hello and welcome to the Bulwark Podcast. I am Amanda Carpenter sitting in for Charlie Sykes, who is traveling. And today I'm joined by someone who I've already had people say, how do you two know each other? Um, I wanted to get to know Ellie because number one, he's super smart. He's funny. He has a strong point of view. And these are all things I like. So Ellie Mistel, welcome to the Bulwark Podcast. Thank you so much for having me. So how are you feeling today? Oh, well, you know, it's it's the start of the Supreme Court term. So everything is is quite busy on my end. And then um, we also have, you know, movers and shakers happening in Texas over their abortion laws. So, you know, just some light reading of 100-page legal decisions <laughs> that will be almost immediately overturned by higher courts pretty much before I'm done reading the thing. Uh, so there's a lot of there, – there's a bit of a, a gerbil on a hamster wheel feel just at the moment. Okay. Well, I'm glad you took out time for us today. Um, but would you mind telling the audience a little bit of what you, I, I know people have seen you everywhere because when you are on television, you immediately capture people's attention with what you have to say. Um, you are the justice correspondent for the nation. But talk to us about what you cover and sort of, you know, what is your political point of view? Are you a liberal? Are you a progressive? What is up with you? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, I generally think that people would call me a progressive. Some people would call me a crazy leftist radical person, which <laughs> I think is unfair because I, friends, right? <laughs> I covered, look, I cover the courts. And just by saying I cover the courts, that already suggests that I am fundamentally a tool of the establishment, right? Because like, to cover the courts is to cover an institution um, that relies on kind of establishment-leaning, institutionalist-feeling uh, um, prerogatives, right? So, so, so it's it's unfair to call me a radical. I don't want to burn it down. I just want to smash everything and make it a little bit different, right? Uh, <laughs> that's the best way to describe my politics. Look, uh, as a as a court as a kind of first and foremost court reporter. What I try to do in my work is explain to people what the courts are doing without legalese, without jargon, and how what they're doing impacts our politics. I think that when I was growing up, when you when I when I when I was coming through law school, it was very standard to view the courts as kind of almost like disembodied, you know, heads in vats. You know, mm -hmm. pontificating about the law from on high, and that it was that the law and the courts were objective in some way. The robes Ho make it mysterious, right? Hopefully, by now people have figured out that the courts do not act that way at all. That they are political; they're a political agenda-driven institution, just like every other branch of government. And I try to explain, expose, whatever what those politics and what those agendas are. Um, because sometimes it is their agendas and their their political meanings can be hidden behind the legalese and behind the jargon and behind all that. Hmm. So, so it sounds like it sounds like you you love and both hate your job. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I love and hate my job as I love and hate my country at this point. <laughs> like I'm, well, I'm kind we, of we will get into the strategies you, you think we should take to um, burn it down, perhaps. But first, you know, I know you are a dad and you care so much about your family. I am wondering if you, and you mentioned to me earlier, you just came off a parent-teacher conference. So you're going through all the things that everyone else is going through and trying to navigate the pandemic and the masking 
in everything else. I am wondering, did you, have you seen the videos of these people out in LA harassing parents who are escorting their elementary children from school um, because the school requires masks and they're all wearing masks and they're going up to them and saying, don't you know this is child abuse? Unmask your children. I, I, I struggle, Amanda, and I'm being absolutely serious here. I struggle to think of a lower form of human than the kind of person who shouts at children going to school. Like, I have strong political views about many, many things. Things that you and I, Amanda, might disagree with. Things that me and your, you and your listeners might disagree with. But the thought of shouting at children who, no matter what you believe politically, are blameless, have done nothing, are trying to learn ABCs and 123s, to shout at them, it's, it's the, because of your political viewpoint. It's it's just beyond low to me. It's beyond depraved to me. Um, I, I I I I I cannot. I, I I do not know what I would say or would do around these people if it were if it were my kid. Uh, um, I, my school. I, I live in New York. My school does not have these problems. Um, but the I it's. It's one of the lowest things. It's it's a to me. It's a true low point in our country um, to have these parents screaming at kids for 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 even if you don't agree with the public safety advice for for trying to follow mainstream public safety advice, right? Yeah, I mean, I'm telling you, I'm the kind of person like if you some people like to be scared. If you jump out and scare me. I'm probably going to punch you. My husband has learned this the hard way when he thought he could just surprise jump scare me like behind a door <laughs> that I have an immediate reaction. Sometimes I cannot control. So like no one tried to jump scare me, please ever. Um, but I just watched that video and I felt my blood pressure rising. I, I do not know how I would have reacted. I think, you know, the first thing that came to my mind was like, I might've just told my daughter, Hey, my earrings are a little itchy. I'm going to take them off now. You go to the car and keep my earrings safe. Mommy will be back in a minute. Right? And that's not a good reaction. That like that's not healthy. And that woman in that video, you know, she kind of yelled back a little bit, but she kept walking. And I think that is just a tremendous amount of self-control. But then I thought about it. And those protesters, you know, the people harassing elementary school children were doing exactly what Tucker Carlson has been telling people to do. He and went I, on I, this program a few months ago and he said, if you, your response when you see children wearing masks should be no different to see one, seeing someone beat a kid at Walmart, call the police, contact child protective services. And that's what they're doing. They were yelling, this is child abuse. You're abusing your child. Look, look, man, uh you're saying you don't know how you would react. I'm saying I don't know how I would react. You know, my grandmother knows how she would react because she had to. Because these mm -hmm. people, these are the same people that were there, you know, when my black mother was integrating schools in Mississippi, right? When she was in elementary school. Uh, um, the, the, the mob of people who feel entitled politically to scream at children, harass children, use children as a, as a, as a, as a way, as a soft point 
to get into their larger political objectives. These people have always existed in this country, and they've always been motivated by the people like Tucker Carlson. Everybody acts like Tucker is some kind of new phenomenon, some kind of new threat, some kind of new, mm-hmm. you know, uh, in person in our in our media ecosystem, right? Well, he's just the one we know. We've gotten to know that we're familiar he's, with, and now we're shocked, shocked. He's saying such things. He's just the most recent version of these people. The, the Tucker Carlson has existed in every generation of American history. There is always somebody with a microphone or a bullhorn or a quill willing to inspire the very worst people in this country um, to to be angry and to be violent um, um, over over their political uh, uh, beliefs um, against children. That 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 guy always exists. Tucker's just the current version of it. Yeah, and this, and as we all know, it's not just happening in L.A. In Sarasota, Florida, earlier this week, there was videos of people protesting outside the home of a school board member. And this one, I mean, honestly, it strikes a little bit close to home to me. My uh, father-in-law used to be a longtime uh, school board chairman in Manatee County, which is right next door to Sarasota. And so, watching these people mobilize against school board members in their homes um, seems seems so aggressive. And uh, as a result, I, I think they sort of, the bad guys sort of won in Florida. Um, outside this woman's home was a guy wearing a Proud Boy shirt. Um, not many of them, but enough outside her driveway. And the school board recently voted to um, take away the mask mandate, even though, you know, there's still no vaccine for kids, even though Florida's had a terrible time of it when it comes to COVID. So these tactics do seem to be working, but there is actually a legal angle here um, that I'm interested in your take because the Department of Justice um, is is trying to address this. Um, A bunch of school boards petitioned the Biden White House for some kind of guidance or help, and Merrick Garland issued a memo on Monday um, asking for the FBI and U.S. attorneys to meet with officials and coordinate some kind of response. But I, I have no idea what they could come up with. What do you, what do you think they can do? Well, look. Or should do. Well, I, I, I think there, I think, I, I think Merrick Garland's late to the party on this. So I, I'm glad he's finally doing this. Look, we have laws about what is free speech, free expression, what have you, and what is threats or intimidation to violence, Right. The, the, the legal jargon here is called true threat. There is a mm. very bright line um, between saying what you believe, what you have a right to, to say in public, to protest. Um, that line goes all the way up to harassment. That, where, where we draw the line is for a lot of people, for a lot of liberals, um, far pa- like way permissive of speech, right? We allow aggressive speech. We, for the most part, allow hate speech. We allow all kinds of speech. But when your speech crosses over that line to a threat, what's, again, a true threat, an actual um, um, kind of cognizable threat of harm or violence against a specific person, that is illegal, right? So a, a good way of, of me explaining this is the clan marches by my house shouting at me, 
there ain't there ain't there ain't anything I can do. Mm. That that that's just that is their free speech right to assuming they have a permit to march in my neighborhood, to march past my house and shout at me and call me ouchy words. They have that right. If the clan knocks on my door and it says, I hate you, they I can't really, you know, as long as they're, you know, if they leave my property when I say you're trespassing, uh, they can do that, right? That's that's I, I couldn't Ugh. go to the FBI even at that point. If the clan says, Ellie, I'm gonna kill you. Now, now we're talking. <laughs> Mm. So, you know, but everything short of that, I know where you live. You better do the right thing. We're watching you. Well, well, and that's and that's the gray area. Right. So 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 walking down my street, clearly legal. Ellie, I'm going to kill it. Kill you. Clearly illegal. Ellie, I know where you live. And if you don't do the right thing, it'd be, you know, be a shame. Something happened in that house of yours. Now we're in the gray area. Mm -hmm. Right. And and it's and it's appropriate at that point for the law for law enforcement in this case the FBI to investigate to figure out what's going to figure out if it's a true threat or not um, to prosecute people who have on once who are on the wrong side of the line and to you know warn people of where the line is. I myself and I wouldn't be surprised if if if, lot, if other people. There are lots of people who have been in my position. I myself have had to go to the FBI on occasion um, because of threats I've received online um, because of my writing or commentary. It happens. Nobody was arrested because where they were on that line was was still just before the line. Says if it was online, did they get kicked off Twitter or anything like that? Because I was shocked. A couple of weeks ago, there was a congressional candidate in Virginia who was calling essentially for the execution of Maricopa County officials. And Twitter said, you know what? That doesn't violate our standards. Yeah. No, my my guy got kicked off of Facebook because my guy wasn't an elected official. I think like if you're an elected official, Mm. you get to say worse things. Oh, no. Protected speech. Great. Great. Right? Right? He was just a regular guy, so Facebook could do something. But he didn't make Facebook any money. So, he, you know, he he, (laughs) – right? I mean that's how it, that's really how it works, right? Yeah. So but essentially, my, so, file your papers for office, and you can say whatever you want. Pretty much, right? But you know, so, look. The point is that mm-hmm. obviously the FBI should get involved because there is a line that some of these people are crossing when they're harassing school board me- members, threatening principals, um, um, and th- threatening just kind of workaday public officials over mask mandates. Obviously, some people are crossing the line, but the reality is most of them aren't because of we've drawn the line in such a way as to be extremely permissive of speech, hate speech, and, you know, light threats. And just as a liberal, you know, I'm always reminded, I, I usually, def- I, I'm, I'm kind of weird as a liberal that I usually end up defending these lines. Um because I know that more often than not, law enforcement is going to be run by people I really don't agree with. Right? <laughs> law enforcement is going to be run by the other guys. And as much as I want to say, yeah, somebody should stop the Klan from marching by my house, right? Like that, that would be great if that was illegal. Um, when, when the wheel comes around and when the person in charge flips, They'll say, well, you know, Martin Luther King should, shouldn't be allowed to march by, by your house. Black Lives Matter shouldn't be allowed to march by your house. Oh, they would to stop that in St. Louis, right? And that's why the little man right? came out with his little gun. 
Ellie shouldn't be allowed to march past your house. That that Ellie guy, he's he's online inciting violence, right? Like so, so you, it's it's not hard to to flip the script um, on depending on who's in control of law enforcement uh, in terms of whose speech gets um, gets punished if we draw the line about, uh, on free speech kind of too too closely. Yeah, I have sort of have two. I, I think this, these school boards are so vastly outmatched. They have no idea w- what they're truly up against. Um, but number one, and it makes me sad to say it, it seems these schools, you know, at least in the big counties, um, need some kind of threat assessment manager to track this stuff online. Well, you know, whether it comes to all kinds of threats, to just be vigilant about what is happening online because every time there's something bad that happened it's like oh yeah he had this in his profile and yada 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 like that kind of needs to be compiled before the fact to give a heads up to take some sort of preemptive action if the need be um but also i'm sort of wondering in usually I, I used to be such a strong proponent of you know film everything put everything online for all these meetings and i do think transcripts and audio should maybe be available but maybe it's time to get the cameras out of these meetings because this so much of this is performance driven uh, in hopes of catching attention online and making a viral moment. And I used to think that cameras in the court, in the Supreme Court, would be a good idea. And now I'm, I'm just completely disabused of that notion. Hmm. Take the cameras out. I, you know, uh, from, a, from a safety concern, I kind of like the cameras around. Right, mm. I've got a dashboard cam because I drive while black often, right? Like I kind of, I, I kind of feel like cameras are are, are yeah, for public a measure, meetings, but yeah, go yeah, go ahead. measure of safety. But mm-hmm. I think you are right that the, the there is an aspect where the performative aspect here um, is a little bit obvious um, and has gotten a little bit out of hand. And if you're not gonna like, look, if you want to have the camera so you can record these people and then punish them. That's one thing, but since most of these people are being punished, yeah, I, I see. I, I I take your point. I don't know if I agree, but I take your point there. When it comes to cameras in the courtroom, I I, I strongly disagree because mm-hmm. one of one of the problems that I feel with the courts, one of the things that I struggle with uh, 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 in my job with the courts, is that that institution is already so not transparent, right? So it's already such a black box. These are these are people who are affecting the day-to-day lives of millions of people um, and most people don't even, you know, they operate in secret. So I think anything to, to shed light on their proceedings um, is actually helpful. And I'm less worried, you know, about people kind of performatively acting out in front of John Roberts than I am people performatively acting out at a school board meeting. Uh, Just because, you know, the court has guards, I'm worried um, about the judges performatively <laughs> acting, actually. Well, I mean, are you? Because they seem to be more than capable uh, 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 of putting on a show by going on the talk show circuit, right? Yeah, I mean, that's the true. Whole that, summer, that, that seems so weird to me. That seems so but, weird to me that they take on the robe and they're so objective and then they just run around to these conferences. Like, that, that is so bizarre to me. fundraising events, right? Thomas uh, Alito, Kavanaugh, they've all done fundraising events um, for the Federalist Society. Stephen Breyer's out here on Fox News. uh, I wrote about this yesterday in The Nation, about how Stephen Breyer's out here on Stephen Colbert and Fox News hawking a book. Um, 
uh, Amy Coney Barrett giving speeches, standing next to Mitch McConnell at the Mitch McConnell Center, <laughs> talking about how she's not a hack for Mitch McConnell. But here, here's what I'm confused about. I, why is Stephen Breyer still a judge? You know, I asked, you know, my Democratic friends about this. And like they're they're nervous to say that he should retire. That seems so obvious to me. Your Democratic friends might be. Your progressive friends ain't. Like okay. we've been. I start saying Stephen Breyer should retire the minute Warnock and Ossoff won in Georgia. Like that was that should have been his last day on the job, as far as I'm concerned. Because we just went through this with, with Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Republicans have outplayed us on the Supreme Court in exactly this way. They have retired at the opportune moment. So one, one way to look at why the court is the way it is, right? Sandra Day O'Connor, while perfectly healthy, retired so that she could take care of her, at that point, sick husband. She wanted to do this um, under Clinton but didn't want to retire under a Democratic president, then was the fifth vote in making George W. Bush president, then retired under George W. Bush. Interesting, right? Sandra Day O'Connor retired strategically. Anthony Kennedy. As they should. Why wouldn't you? There's only nine of them. (laughs) Right? Anthony Kennedy, obviously, still healthy, still out there, you know, writing books, retired strategically. Flip it the other side, Ruth Bader Ginsburg did not retire strategically. She had an opportunity to retire in 2012. She wouldn't take it. She thought she was either immortal or whatever. Um, um, Didn't retire strategically. Uh, Thurgood Marshall, people forget this kind of sad tale. Thurgood Marshall retired honorably. He retired when he was too old to do the job anymore. He was sick. He felt like he couldn't kind of chew the leather at the same kind of intellectual capacity as he had in the past. He was ailing, and he retired under George Bush. That seat eventually went to Clarence Thomas. But he didn't die. Thurgood Marshall didn't die until two weeks after Bill Clinton was signed in, was sworn in as president. If Thurgood Marshall had just stayed on until he died, if he had been carried out of the Supreme Court in a coffin, well, I don't as think he knew to, how long he was going to last. Well, sure, but I'm just saying he he knew that yeah. he knew when he retired, he knew there was a Republican president. If he had just, I'm just going to stay here until I actually drop dead, the world would yeah, never. You think know he should? He just should have risked it. I'm just saying. I'm just saying. Look, the Democrats have not has have historically not done this in a strategic manner. Mm-hmm. The Republicans always have that's a big reason they are in control of the supreme court and so ne- so you bring all of that history into the briar conversation right that all of that history weighs on why people like me start saying briar you need to retire as soon as warnock and ossoff win because i know what's happened to that side of the aisle in the past the right smart thing to do for briar would be to retire would have been to retire as soon as Biden was sworn into office. And I'll throw this out here. A lot of Democrats are angry these days at Manchin and and Cinema, and they're wondering what can be done to, to, to force them to toe the party line. I'll tell you this. One of the reasons the Democratic majority, the, the, the Schumers and Durbins and of the world, can't risk pissing off Manchin and Cinema to the point where they might caucus as independents, let's say, is because 
they know that they need those votes in order to replace Breyer. If Breyer was already out of the equation, I believe more pressure would be brought upon Mansion and Cinema. But because they have to keep playing, they have to keep themselves on the houseboat so they can get a Supreme Court <laughs> replacement that they know Mitch McConnell will give them zero votes for. Uh, that's another reason why Mansion and Cinema have as much power as they appear to have. Breyer, that that also is partially Breyer's fault. So he's 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 really doing a disservice to. And here's the here's the last thing I'll say about Breyer. He's doing a disservice to the issues he claims to care about. Stephen Breyer claims to care about the court's reputation of, uh, as an apolitical institution. But by hawking a book and going on the talk shows and clearly putting ourselves in the position where Mitch McConnell has more and more power as we get closer and closer to the midterms, he's putting in stark relief just how political the court is. He cares about issues like the death penalty. He cares about issues um, like uh, women's, like a woman's right to choose. He's putting those issues in jeopardy by his desire to stay on the court for another year. It's, uh, it's, it's. Yeah, sad. it seems to me that a Supreme Court fight would probably even be better for the Democrats to have right now, rather than acting like the fate of the republic depends on the reconciliation bill. Right. I would mean, you- this is just so far in the weeds with me. You guys have a bill that will pass with Republican votes. Take the win, campaign on it in 2022, and, and go have another court fight that energizes the bay. But like that's just me looking at it politically. But I do want to stay on this on, on on the court decisions because you're following it so closely. And you know they had there was a federal judge what last night said that the Texas abortion law had to be stopped. Um, everyone sees this going to the court sometime this spring. Um, do you, do you think this, this might impact the midterms and what would happen if, if Breyer got sick? I mean, it's, this is also dependent on events. Anything could happen. Um, but I'm not, I'm not really sure how this plays. The, the focus has been on the Texas bill. Um, I think the Mississippi bill that sets the line for banning abortion after 15 weeks makes a lot more sense and moves the discussion into, you know, viability versus, just um, trimesters, but let me let me know where your head is on all this. Yeah, so just to, to catch to catch everybody up on the news, Judge Pittman, the district court, a district court judge in Texas, uh, uh, blocked the Texas SB8 abortion law temporarily. Um, as we're recording last night, now that will be appealed to the Fifth Circuit. They will, I think, overturn. I don't know when this airs. They might overturn Pittman before this airs. They might overturn Pittman before I finish the sentence. Quite frankly, um, <laughs> uh, uh, I, I don't think that Pittman's decision is going to survive the Fifth Circuit through the weekend. Um, at which point, it will go be back on its course to be uh, appealed to the Supreme Court. We just stop you- there for a second. I'm kind of surprised. This law has been on the books for what a few weeks now. Um, ha- have there been any private rights of action brought against any women? I, I thought things yeah. would be moving on this much more. I haven't heard about it. Oh no, there there have been pri- no people have been suing. Uh, well, remember the law doesn't allow you to sue the women; they allow right, you to right, sue the, 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 providers. the providers or the aiders and abettors. Um, um, so there have already been private actions brought against aider, uh, people uh, who provide abortions. They've been brought by people out of state. One guy who's in jail in oh, Alabama. Wait, 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 hold on. Out of state? People who are out of state? 
can people, bring these lawsuits against who, providers in Texas? People who do not live in Texas can sue abortion providers in Texas. And this was a key function of the bill because that's what gets them Heritage Foundation money. That's what gets them bedsock money. That's what allows a national organization to set up a watchdog website, which the Heritage Foundation did in the first week after um, the, the bill came up before literally Korean pop fans, BTS fans, just <laughs> review bombed it. And they couldn't keep the website open. I mean, that's an actual thing that happened. But like the plan was always for a national conservative organization like the Heritage Foundation to be kind of the clearinghouse for these complaints. And then they themselves would bring the suits um, against Texas abortion providers. So it was always part of the plan to have out-of-state people suing Texas abortion providers. Um, so yeah. yeah so I just judge- got to say right there, I mean, this to me seems, you know, I'm pro-life. I think a lot of our Bulwark listeners are pro-life. But the idea of creating a private right of action where any random Joe can bring a lawsuit based on nothing other than suspicion and cause a bunch of problems for a healthcare provider is bonkers. Like that is not a way that you advance a loving, nurturing culture of life. Um, I've talked before about how I, I think much, many more consequences should be brought down upon men who uh, are the cause of many unwanted children who walk away from those children. Um, If you want to have a culture of life, we should be fixing more of that and having maybe private rights of action for dads who walk away from their responsibilities, whether the woman has an abortion or not, because there are certainly medical consequences, emotional consequences that women are forced to deal with. So I would like to see private rights of action on those terms. Um, But this, it's, the national discussion following this, you know, when I watch the news, when I participate in the news, it always gets to, well, are they going to overturn Roe? Like, they just get right up to the most eye-catching headline rather than talking about what is actually happening on the ground with random people being able to sue other organizations and people based on nothing. Which is why I think ultimately the Supreme Court will not allow the Texas law to stand. It's it creates too many legal shadow valleys um, for for the for the institution of the courts to deal with. If the Texas law can stand, the next thing that happens is that law gets copied in Missouri, in Iowa, in North Dakota, in Florida, like that. So then we have you know probably around 30 states that also have a private bounty hunter system um, meant directly to subvert constitutional rights. At that point, because, you know, Democrats are always slow. We're, all, we're always a little bit slow to the fight. Why? Why? Um, um, at, at the point where we've got 30 states outright, you know, functionally banning abortion through a private bounty hunter system, some blue state will eventually get on the, get on the good foot. And, write their own law, uh, having a private bounty hunter system for, for, for people, um, uh, who violate gun laws. Right. So we'll have a private bounty hunter system to, to sue Smith and Wesson or, you know, to, to, to sue Glock, uh, for, for manufacturing guns that are used in crime, not a constitutional issue because it's not the state doing it. And right. And the Supreme court will be like, well, that, that can't happen. Once you open the Pandora's box on private bounty hunters subverting constitutional rights, it kind of never ends. 
And mm-hmm. at some point, a blue state will make that pretty clear. Um, so I think the 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 uh, the the SBA will ultimately be overturned because of its wacky enforcement mechanism. But you you said the right thing, Amanda. You you highlighted the right case. The Supreme Court is going to overturn Roe, and it's not going to be with Texas. It's going to be with Mississippi. Mm-hmm. They already have a case on the docket that they're arguing on December 1st called Dobbs v. Jackson Women Health. And the issue in Dobbs is a law in Mississippi that bans abortion outright after 15 weeks, no exception for rape, no exception for incest. Now, when we talk about Roe v. Wade, all we're talking about is the concept, all Roe stands for is the concept that you cannot ban abortion, you cannot have an outright ban on abortions before fetal viability. Fetal viability is thought to be 24, 23, 24 weeks. 15 weeks? earlier than 24 weeks. So that that's when we're talking about overturning Roe, what we're talking about is moving that standard, which is now at 24 weeks, back to 15 weeks. Whether or not the court, if the court finds that constitutional, then they are essentially overturning Roe v. Wade, whether or not they put it like that in their decision, right? And mm-hmm. that's the case, that December 1st argument. That's the way the Supreme Court always intended to overturn Roe. The Texas thing kind of came out of left field, is kind of wacky, kind of excites the conservative base, but was never the kind of legally uh, institutional way the court wanted to do this. They wanted to do this in Dobbs. So what I think will happen is that the court will delay a decision on SB8 until after it is overturned Roe v. Wade and Dobbs in June. Oh, really? and Why? Then, oh wow, that that is not good politically for and Republicans. And then belatedly say, <laughs> "Oh, by the way, SB eight that's that's unconstitutional." Huh. Why wouldn't they overturn SB eight first? Why did they let because it that's go? So obviously bad. So okay. So what you're telling me is that they are going to hand the the Democrats if they wanted to, they could campaign against bounty hunters all through the spring, but then get whipsawed around and Roe v. Wade would be overturned for abortion after 15 weeks after that. Yep, but what they're not, but what they're going to do when when they overturn abortion, I believe when they overturn abortion in June, they will not say they're overturning Roe v. Wade. They will say that they are changing the standard that Roe v. Wade stands for. But Roe v. Wade is still good law, and that will give you're saying it's good for Democrats. No, no, no. This will give Republicans what they want because mm-hmm. Republicans will both be able to claim a victory that they have functionally eviscerated a woman's right to choose, but then whip around and send out a fundraising letter saying, Roe v. Wade still stands. We still got to do something. Give us money so we can stop the baby Holocaust. Like Mm -hmm. that's the next fundraising letter after the Supreme Court gives them a victory. Meanwhile, Democrat, moderate Democrats, predominantly white male moderate Democrats will look at this decision that again, eviscerates a woman's rights to choose and will then go on the media and say, well, could have been worse. Roe v. Hmm. Wade is still good law, so there's nothing we need to do. We don't need to codify. We don't need to pass a law protecting abortion rights. We don't need to reform the Supreme Court. Everything is fine, folks. We didn't completely lose. That's what yeah. That's what Joe Manchin's going to say. That's what uh, 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 Chris Coons is going to say um, after the decision. So it's going to really work out, I think, to Republicans' um, benefit. 
um, the way the court two-steps this. Um, but I think that's what's going to happen. Let me ask you this, because I think, you know, I'm largely okay with banning abortion after 15 weeks, um, regardless of rape or incest, because at, at that point in the pregnancy, you know how far along you are. There's many options for early pregnancy. Um, you know, there's most other countries don't allow abortion um, past 12 or 15 weeks. Um, but sort of what is a question for me is, do these justices have to, is, is there any burden to um, put medical evidence, testimony, um, studies about fetal viability when they make their decision? Because to me, this isn't like a political decision. This is literally life and death for um, the babies, for the mothers. And I, I am uncomfortable with judges making medical decisions like this. And I would feel a lot better about any decision if it was informed by science. But I'm not sure they have to be informed by that. But of course, they don't have to be informed by that. And that's why I am uncomfortable with judges or politicians or governors or anybody else other than a woman and her doctor making this decision. No, the judges don't have to put any medical information in their decisions, nor do they have to understand any medical information, nor do they have to understand how the human reproductive system even works, which oh, we, they don't. We've seen that from Congress. <laughs> we've seen, seen we've seen clear evidence that they don't actually understand how, how, how this works. And so when you have these bans, the, the judges do not understand. The people writing these laws do not seem to understand that most women will not know they are pregnant at six weeks. Right, right. Which is hu hugely problematic. Hugely. So, so, so no, there, there, doesn't, there doesn't have to be any medical information in their decision-making process. What has, what, what the only thing they have to do is justify this constitutionally, which is why the Roe standard is, the to, me, to, my, to my view, the only legally logical standard because it says that a woman has a right to her own body until the fetus can survive without her help. Right. And that's Legal. why I would like to have more proof of fetal viability when that, because I, I, I do believe, and I know this um, from women who have had premature babies, that babies can survive um, earlier than that threshold set by Roe v. Wade. And so that, that is why I welcome this debate. And I think it would be good for everyone to get on the same terms about when a baby is able to survive outside the womb rather than having these old 1970 standards when our science has advanced so much but who, further. But who do you think is in the best position to make that decision? Doctors. Is it, Which it, is it, why I, I, I'm kind of like, I am seeing how this is going to go. And I'm not confident in the people's ability who may be arguing the case I like to make a case that will be defensible on medical grounds. Because they don't have to. Because they right. because that, right. that's not that those aren't the standards. Those aren't the standards of law. And I'll say generally this. If how do I want to put this? There is value. There is value in having a system of laws that do not require the the people making the judgments to be experts in the technical field, right? Mm. Uh, oh, as we saw with the Facebook hearings this week. Right. I don't well, actually I don't, those were a little better than normal. 
I don't need the judges to understand how Facebook works because they don't and they're not gonna because they're old. <laughs> I don't need the judges <laughs> to understand how Facebook works. I need them to understand how antitrust laws work, right? I need them to understand how the constitution works. And so that's why I feel like it's, it, it's, that's why on, on whether we're debating Facebook or debating abortion rights or debating voting rights, it's like I don't, I don't need the, the technical expertise. I don't need the judges to flex their technical expertise. I need them to flex their legal expertise. And legally, we have antitrust laws that can stop Facebook. Just apply those. Legally, we have a 14th Amendment that tells us when a woman is a person. And we should just apply those. <laughs> I, I like this. Enforce the rules we have. I think you're a conservative, actually. <laughs> Just kidding. What? Are, all right. <laughs> what other What other court cases are you watching? Well, as I've said many times, by June, which is when these decisions will come out, you will have more rights to own if you own a gun than if you own a uterus. Because the <laughs> other thing the court is going to do, while at the same time, this is while the court, out of one side of its mouth, tells us that the state has the power to interrupt the conversation between a woman and her doctor about what's best for her own body, while the state court is doing that, they're also going to say the state does not have the right to license guns. Screw regulate guns. We, mm. we're, we're long past regulating Oh, is guns. this for like the 3D printer guns? Is this where no, no, we're no, no, going? No, no, no. no. This, is, this is the New York State Rifle and Pistol Association has sued the state of New York over its gun permit requirements, saying that constitutionally under the Second Amendment, there is no right for the state to require you to have a gun license to take your oh. gun outside the house. So the Texas law that says, you know, there, there are no more gun licenses, there, this case is trying to impose that Texas law nationally, basically, um, by taking away uh, New York State's right to license. I will just, off, off the top of my head, point out that New York State has the right to license whether or not you can drive a car, um, whether or not you have to wear a helmet on your bike. You have whether to get or a not fishing license in most beer, states. Whether or not you can fish, whether or not you can hunt, but it, but but they're arguing that the state does not have the right to ask you to present a license um, uh, uh, to own a firearm outside of your house. Now, this case has been complicated recently because a group of public defenders um, representing uh, urban clients, which is, you know, my, my, my urbane euphemism for black and brown people. Uh, <laughs> uh, that is true. Why do, why do they do that? I, I, right? as, as if there aren't black people living in, you know, on a farm in Georgia. No, but we got to be whatever. Um, <laughs> whatever. Uh, <laughs> A group of public defenders representing urban clients um, has agreed with New York State Rifle and Pistol that gun licensing should be unconstitutional. And they've said that's because the way cops impose the licensing requirements are racist. Basically, every argument you've heard about why uh, drug enforcement laws are racist, you know, mm -hmm. that they, it's a pretext for crime and they overpunish black people and underpunish white, all, all those arguments. They've made this all those same arguments about gun laws that uh, uh, they they use 
gun violations as a pretext to violate other constitutional rights, that the punishment scheme is way out of whack. Black people are, you know, X times more likely to be punished for having an unlicensed firearm, Y times more likely to be uh, punished for, for having a loaded firearm. Um, one of the really uh, disturbing stats that I found out through researching this case uh, New York treats it differently if you have a loaded weapon or an unloaded weapon, somewhat obviously, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. But if you mm-hmm. have like ammo in your pocket, in one pocket, and then the gun in your other pocket that's not loaded, pocket. I don't have guns. I'm sure you don't carry it in a pocket. Whatever. I don't care. Um, <laughs> Cargo short. <laughs> that, 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 there's a gray area there, right? So mm-hmm. if you have the – so you could be – if you have the ammo and the gun on your person – you can be charged of having a loaded weapon, but you can also not be. And it turns out that, you know, 200% more likely if you're black to be charged of having a loaded weapon in that situation than if you're white. So yeah. there is racism throughout the enforcement of gun laws in the country. The public defenders make a great point. Where I believe that they are wrong is that they have come down on the side of the way to solve this racism is through an expansion of gun rights as opposed to the way to solve this racism is through an expansion of civil rights. Huh. Um, okay. But that's going to be, but, but when the conservatives um, agree with New York state rifle and obliterate New York state's licensing requirement, I believe that they will use the arguments uh, uh, promulgated by the public defenders to the point where I, I my, my, my big prediction here is that they will have Clarence Thomas write the majority opinion in this case. Um, Why would because, that be? Because Clarence has been <laughs> making this argument um, in pretty much every gun case um, that's come across his desk. He, he has been he has been making this this particular um, uh, uh, gun enforcement or enforcement laws are racially biased argument um, huh. um, quite a bit throughout his uh, throughout his legal career. I think they're going to have him write this particular um, case, which will again. I cannot emphasize this enough. Make every state like Texas. Just, just, just make it impossible or nearly impossible for the for a state government to require permitting and licensing before you conceal carry your weapon. And one of the things about gun laws that look, I'm obviously super liberal. I think guns are bad, but I. I've always been able to understand. Look, this is I'm on the bulwark, so 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 maybe you're you're making me a little bit more conservative. But yeah, this just is, by just by being here is rubbing off on you. You might right? you might have to like go to I I don't know a Code Pink rally or something after right? this. I don't this even know the, if Code Pink still exists. This is one of the <laughs> only areas of law where I respect or at least understand federalism a little bit, right? Like mm-hmm. I I kind of fundamentally get that. Your need to have a shotgun when you're living, you know, somewhere in the middle of the Everglades. Right. Because the police ain't coming if you, right. if, if the bad guys come or the bear comes or who or knows. Or the alligator what. comes or whatever the hell you're dealing hey, with. I out, would shoot the know. hell out of an alligator if it came in, in anywhere in my property. Right. No maybe, questions maybe asked. Need, maybe you need the shotgun in that situation in a way you don't on the Upper East Side. All right. You, you, mm-hmm. you, don't, you don't need. You don't need a sawed-off shotgun to protect yourself from the pizza rats on Amsterdam Avenue, right? So, so, so there, I, I can understand yeah. having a federalist system here, having slightly different gun laws and regulations depending on the place you live and the environment around it. But 
The Republican argument now in front of the Supreme Court is, no, 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 every state has to be Texas. Gun licensing permit laws are unconstitutional. That's well, I'm glad you brought that up because I, I was not aware of that court case. I was aware of the Texas law. And uh, yeah, that, that seems like it could be a pretty big deal. Um, as we sort of wrap this up, I, I want to talk about um, some things I wish I didn't have to read um, or didn't come across my radar this week because increasingly <laughs> I'm trying to protect my time and I see something. I'm like, wow. I wish I didn't have to waste my time thinking about that, which brings, brings me to Stephanie Grisham's new book. Have you read it? I have not. And I will not. Right? I haven't read any of these tell-alls, but yeah. Oh my gosh. I mean, it's literally titled, I'll Take Your Questions Now. She was White House Communications Director, famously didn't take any questions at all. And now that it's all over, she wants to write this tell-all telling us about stuff we already knew. Like, oh my gosh, Donald Trump is gross to women. Oh my gosh, the White House was a total nut house. And I'm just like, in interview after interview, she's out there and then she tells the sob story about how she had to write this book to warn us about what could happen if Donald Trump ran for president in 2024. And it's like, She's not the first one to do this. We saw this with Michael Cohen, Anthony Scaramucci, and they all rode the Trump train until they basically got kicked off, until it didn't work out for them. And now they want to go give us advice? Uh, no thank you. Yup. Yeah, no, these people people are grifters. The entire, Uh. uh, Trump only attracts grifters to him and when he kicks, kicks them off the grift train, they go find another grift. It is pathetic. I will not support it. I will not I will not give my hard-earned dollar to these people. And by the way, when I say these people, I'm including Bob Woodward. I, I don't want to hear any more. You know what? I'm sick of him selling right? books off little excerpts that come out and drive the media world crazy. You know, like this stuff with General Milley. Like, oh my gosh, he might have been staging a coup. And then two weeks later, we get the contacts. It's like, oh, may- maybe not. I- I- I'm sick like, of I'm, that. I, I do not send an excerpt out to the media. No one should talk about it until we all get the whole dang book. And then we can decide to read the whole thing and talk about it. There's also just like, if, you, if you've got relevant information about the future of our democracy, tell me now, not three years from now, when you can make some money off of it. Journalist. You know, I, I so no, I I I don't I don't do, I don't truck with any of these tell-all things. Um, uh, 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 look, I have enough time just just trying to figure out which which horrible story I'm muting on Twitter today. Um, I, I, don't, I don't need to <laughs> right? add tell-all books to that to that uh, to that list. Uh, well, on that front, what would you did rather you Tide- mute? You, Go ahead. Did you see Did you see Tide Pod Lady Tide Lady? There, no, there, there I, I saw this. bad art lady. I saw uh, Rod Dreher invent a new phrase, which I want to get out of my brain forever. But tell me about Tide Pod Lady. Rod Dreher was, was the midlife circumcision guy, right? That, that's, yes. That's not a thing. Primitive. I, I, whenever I see his name now, Rod, I will, <laughs> I will only refer to him as P-R-W. 
Just, that is what he is to me now. And anybody is, that read it, you know, I go ahead and punish yourself because that is my gift to you. Anytime you see his name, he is P-R-W. My gift to you is Tide Lady. So, so this woman went on parlor, this woman named white woman named Raven. And the fact that she's white is important. Uh, um, she went on parlor to rail against Tide. Well, there, there's a red flag right there. <laughs> <laughs> go ahead. Because... Because Tide had a commercial in her, you know, geographic reason, wherever she lives, um, that showed a lesbian biracial couple washing their clothes. Wow. And she she took offense to this and went on the parlor and said that obviously Tide, the, the company, does not care about her or whore people and are willing to, and I'm quoting, commit a genocide on her race. Oh, by having a lesbian biracial couple in their in their ad um, doesn't represent her values doesn't represent her or her values anymore. Here's um, a question: and, Does she know she's not supposed to eat the Tide Pods? And wait, wait, and her and her family, and again, I am quoting here, will deterge somewhere else. And I, I, I loved this story for for a couple of reasons. One, like. First of all, it's just it, it's so it's it's so catnip to me because it just shows what I like to say: white people cannot take being black people for for like two weeks without losing their minds. Like, well, it was a twofer. She, it was it was interracial and lesbian. I mean, right, like, what could she do? She was so offended. Like every commercial is white families like loving on each other in this country <laughs> from like 1787 in a woodcut till like you know 1984. Like that, that's like the entire, most of the history of, the, of advertising in this country has been like happy white people. So she can't, but she can't handle a biracial and lesbian couple, right? So that's number one. But the second thing that I really loved about this story is that folks, deterge is a word. Deterge is, is, is a, she didn't misspeak. She didn't, she didn't have a typo. Oh, it's Det not like the verb of using detergent. D deterge is the verb of using detergent. That is an oh, actual I, I word. I guessed, I guessed. That is a hot, and so I just, I love, I, cause so too often, so often we act like the, the, the worst people in our society, the most racist people in our society, we act like they're stupid, right? We act like they're, they're <laughs> But ignorant, they have really good vocabulary. Right? And most, many of them are, many of them are, but like you, you can be very smart and very articulate, maybe not very clean, but very articulate and be an inveterate annoying racist and it just yeah. that that brings it all together this dirty woman with this this very this very esoteric vocabulary um who cannot handle the biracial lesbian couple um i love it hmm. well, so much better than midlife circumcision let me tell you <laughs> on that note we're gonna call it a day ellie thank you so much for joining us uh good luck covering everything with the court if you want to follow ellie on twitter What's your name there? It's Ellie NYC, E-L-I-E-N-Y-C on Twitter. And I'm also, I write at The Nation. Um, I'm the justice correspondent there. Okay. Thank you for listening to the Bulwark podcast. Our Thursday night Bulwark will be available for our Bulwark Plus subscribers tonight. And Charlie will be back here tomorrow. <laughs>